Blog Talk Radio. General Quarters, Security Condition 3. Thank you. Security 3, sir. General Quarters 3, Intruder Alert. GQ 3, Intruder Alert. And no matter how many times people ask me, no, I can't just give you my doorman. Of course, he's a free agent. He's, um, I don't own him, but he's a great doorman, isn't he? Hi, good evening, and welcome once again. Madam Perry Salon, the podcast with more celebrities than the inauguration. I am your host and cruise director, Madam Perry, but you can call me Jennifer Perry. And uh, I want to say, first of all, thanks to everybody who's been listening and sharing with their friends. Um, I am surprised and delightfully so when I check stats and find um, how many more people are subscribing and listening and as long as you continue to do so, I can continue to bring you fantastic guests like we've had and like we have tonight and like we have coming up. Uh, a few notes from the road. Oh, and by the way, I got to say um, hello out there to David Hurley, who listens every week and sends in a lot of questions. My friend Mimi and Dana in North Carolina, thank you so much. Um, uh, Andrea in California, and also uh, we had last week we had Matt Coyle from San Diego talking about the latest book in his uh, Detective Rick Cahill series and uh, Blood Truth. And so uh, check out his book. Check out where you're going to find him. He was such a such a popular guest, such a nice guy, and such a great writer. Also, uh, if you were listening two weeks ago. I had a musician, Joey Huffman, on. Now, Joey Huffman uh, is more known as a sideman. He's been on tour several times as the keyboard player. Um, he's one of those people that you see, but you don't know who they are. But you see him on stage with, he's been on with Mick Jagger, uh, Keith Richards, Iggy Pop. Um, he played with Lou Reed some years back, uh, Soul Asylum. Just about anybody you could name. Lately, he's been on the road for a couple of years with uh, um, Hank Williams Jr. And but anyway, we had Joey on Joey Huffman, and he was talking about you know being a musician, running away from home at, at what 15 or 14 to play keyboards with uh, uh, the band Wild Cherry, play that funky music, White Boy. But and, and different stories uh, on the road. So what he's going to start doing, he was so popular on here, and this was his suggestion, and I, I, I like it. He's going to start making um, calls in probably about once a week from the road because he's going, he's back on the road with Hank Williams Jr., and what he's going to do is just call in and make little short calls and give us some stories from the road of what's happening um, with things and people and crazy stuff that happens. So uh, we're going to look forward to Joey Huffman calling in and uh, live on the road with Hank Williams, Jr. I'll tell you what, 
that's that's what makes this even more fun that I can um you know, we have it's such a it's such a party here in Madame Perry Salon and I'm grateful to it. Hey, uh tonight I guess it's been here before and I am thrilled to have him back here again. Um it's difficult to describe this person without taking up half the show, but I will say he's a he's a cyclist, uh a race car driver and thriller author and there's some more things I'm gonna bring up later that he, he may not know that I know. Uh, but anyway, he has got a hot new book out. And let me tell you, when I say suspense author, this man has written books. I'm a grown woman, and I can read. The first time I read one of, uh, one of his books, I had to kept thinking, where's that nightlight? I should have a nightlight in here. But I just want to say welcome once again. To our friend, author Simon Wood. Simon, welcome back to Madame Perry's Salon. Thanks for having me back. I'm delighted. Get comfortable. And you've been here in the genie bottle before, so you know, just find a big cushion, get comfy. And um, you, how many books have you written so far? Um, I'm, I'm not really sure. I, I, I think it's like fifteen or so. I try not to count. I've been been posting uh, a photo of you, and you're in the corner of a room with uh, your book spread out, you know, coming out from you like a a stand out, and some are in other languages. And I see that you've also got um, a lot of audio books, and I was listening to a clip on YouTube of uh, this week of you talking about your audio books, which I would imagine those are extremely popular because there are people who drive – you know, for a living, um, and there are people who travel a lot, like I do, that would love audiobooks. Yeah, I, I one of my things is I'm dyslexic, so uh, I've been getting audiobooks for about 30-odd years. Mainly they were books for the blind originally um, from the library, but, um, yeah, it's been amazing how, probably especially over the last 10, 15 years, how people have used them for commuting, um, you know, whether it's by train or car or whatever. I know I do. I tend to have uh, have them all on my phone and then I'll, I'll play them in the car or when I'm on a train or if I'm walking the dog or something. So I've usually got two or three stories on the go. Um, I think the best time I've had that was I had someone sort of like live tweet me and said mm-hmm. they were on the bar train in San Francisco listening to one of my books, and I said, I'm actually on the BART train right now. And I, I just asked them to put their hand up. I didn't know if they were on the train, but I just thought I just wanted them to put their hand up. And then they'd have to explain why they're putting their hand up. <laughs> That's a pretty cool story either way. But, um, but you know, yeah, you're right. It used to be anything recorded was books for the blind, you know, somebody do reading yeah. for the blind, for the blind. And then I don't know how, um, I began to notice it when I traveled a lot, when, uh, uh, my husband got a job in Asheville, North Carolina, and I would drive back and forth or other places where I would go. And I would just, even on XM radio, it gets to be the same thing over and over and over on the station. So I started, I noticed the truck stops would sell a lot of audio books. And then when I was, and, and then also in the, uh, in an, another interview with you, you heard you say you were dyslexic, which that was the first time I knew that. And I thought, 
Oh, yeah, that would make it so much, so much better or easier for people who are dyslexic so you don't, so you can enjoy the story. Yeah, I, I think also because I grew up in the UK where you had like um, BBC Radio 4, which was basically like news, comedy, and um, and essentially stories. So they used to have uh, Book at Bedtime, which would be, um, I can't remember if it was 15 minutes or half an hour, that they would read, um, you know, a professional reader would basically read a book, you know, a topical book that had come out or a, a classic or something like that. So um, I was used to that. I was used to audio dramas based on books or original radio dramas that I sort of like grew up with. So um, when audio books kind of came in, it was sort of like a natural progression for me. Yeah, that does make more sense. Um, I listened to to radio plays on Sirius XM Radio, but they're the ones from back in the 30s and 40s and 50s. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, that's the difference, you guys, with the BBC. Well, let's talk, go straight to your newest book. Now, for anybody, any friends of mine or anybody calling that have already read it, because last week when Matt Coy was here, there were people who said, oh, I've already read the new book. And go, don't tell me, because I'm starting on saving grace tonight so i don't want anybody else telling me what's going to happen i want to be scared to death on my own okay mm-hmm. but uh so let's talk your brand new book saving grace tell us about it um basically it's the follow-up to paying the piper that came out a few years ago um it takes place six months after the events of Pay the Piper. So the two main protagonists are uh, Scott Fleetwood, who um, was a reporter for the San Francisco in, uh, Independent, and an FBI agent called Tom Shields. And what happens is is that they're still sort of like coming to terms with what's happened to them from the previous case of taking down the Piper. Um, and what happens is a child is abducted, a child um, is abducted in San Francisco and the kidnapper uh, has two demands. He wants money and he wants Scott Fleetwood to represent him. He's going to be the person who's going to be his middleman. And so that brings, if you like, the characters all back together. And the problem they got this time around is they've got a, a kidnapper who seems more interested in uh, media headlines than in the money that he's requested. So, yeah, so it was, it was a pay, uh, so it says a follow-up to the story of paying the piper, but also, when we talk about the child being on holiday, this is, um, so it reminds me, or similar to the story about um, Madeline McCann, uh, or McCann, the girl that, that, that was... was that was young. the inspiration for the book. Ah, okay. And um, for people who may not know the story, just kind of would you just kind of briefly describe it to them? Yeah, um, Madeline McCann, McCann was a, uh, I think she was eight or nine at the time. She was with her family in Portugal, and mm-hmm. um, she was abducted. And this is over a decade ago now, and she still has not been re- um, found or escaped or whatever and the scary thing is now she's going to be uh, a teenager she's going to be about 18 19 
now. And I and the thing was it, that was kind of an unusual story because it was the thing of it was um, a child in a foreign country that had been abducted. So it's that weird thing that um, people, you know, it's like you know your home country can't investigate, so you're sort of like mm-hmm. relying on a foreign police department. So that's a, that's an added layer of complication. But there was a bunch of stuff that happened at the time, which was with um, some misleading news stories. Um, there was um, some mischaracterization of sort of friends of the, the family. And it just was sort of like it became even more and more complicated than, you know, the, the kidnapping seemed like the almost the least of the stories towards the end. And it just kind of fascinated me. There's a lot of people who obviously did a lot of work to try and recover her, but I was very much drawn to um, some of the media manipulation, um, and and I'd been following up and I'd been reading a bunch of other stories about, um, and this isn't to slam the media or anything, but it was just the way the media can be manipulated from the inside and manipulated from the outside, and I thought that was um, a good starting off point for a book. Well, yeah, and that's true because I just I just finished reading Actual Malice by uh, Gary Condit. All right, and I right. don't know if you, yeah, yeah, I remember, and, I remember him, yeah. Oh yeah, when you start reading that the story and all the things behind it, it was that their life was a nightmare. You know, just just an absolute nightmare for the whole family, um, as well as Chandra Levy's family, of course, but the. But the Condit family, I mean, this was just coming, and everybody was getting involved with something crazy and story, and, you know, the media camped out by their house. Um, it was nuts. So um, so what, what kind of, uh, what made you want to go ahead and do something like a follow-up or off of uh, Paying the Piper? Um, I, it, Paying the Piper is a little bit of a fan favorite with people, and... I I'm, I usually do things that are standalone most of the time because I tend to have, I'm driven by an idea or a concept or a premise and I tend to then build the kinds of characters around that kind of premise. So I usually don't come back to the same people again because usually the, there's not a lot left of them by the end of the story. They're usually put through the ringer. <laughs> but um, I just thought with this one it would that I could come back to these characters because I could you could see some people who had been through who'd gone through something similar already and now they're going to be punch drunk and thrown into it again but there's almost a little bit for Scott he's it's not his children on the line this time mm-hmm. and so but the last time a child that wasn't his responsibility was on the line it um, he had died, so there's, you know, there's little bits of the ghosts of the past, sort of still haunting um, the heroes of this story, and also it's the fact that if you've survived this story, that's that big, that would have been made national news, even if it's fictionally, um, you know, there's that problem that you become um, a celebrity by default, and so they've got to deal with now that they're trying to rescue a child and try to do everything if you like covertly or subvertly when the whole world knows who everybody is and so it's hard to do things out of sight when everybody knows where you live 
Everybody knows what you look like. Um, so I decided that I'm going to make these characters, and I have a third book in mind for the, um, for Scott and Tom. Uh, that's um, um, Dad, Dad and Thomas. No, the the characters is is Tom Shields, the FBI oh, okay. agent. I think for for them there's a there's a third story in there for them. Oh, oh, okay, got it. Tom, yes, yeah, I can't see it now, FBI, Tom Shields. Um, I see, I know that some of your favorite writers, you like the, um, you said the stories, you like Raymond Chandler, am I right? Mm-hmm. Um, you were a fan of Raymond Chandler, uh, Chandler as well as um, uh, Clive King, and even Charlie Chan, Sherlock Holmes. Because I was trying to figure out some some of the things you come up with, and and yes, there's a lot of great authors, and and I'm fortunate to have a lot of them here, but there's some things you come up with that just go from one end to the other, and I'm thinking, where does this man come up with this? In fact, there was one. It's like a, a short story. Um, I remember I was reading the short story. I cannot think of the name of it now, but I remember. I'm reading this book, and my husband and I were going somewhere, and finally I told him, he goes, uh, you know, I said, you've got to read this story. I said, this poor guy's had the worst luck. He just parked his car somewhere, and then he gets like he hits somebody who has a ticket, and then he goes back, and then somebody makes him do some kind of a deal, and then it goes on and on and on. Next thing you know, he, he thinks he's driving, a de- he's driving a dead body to some car dealership. You know what I'm talking about, Simon? Yeah, that's um, – that's, uh, a story called The Fall Guy. The Fall Guy. And so I'm described, I said, hey, you won't believe what happens next And my husband tells me. And I'm going, how did you know? He goes, I'm reading the same thing right now. So it was in a different book. And so it's like, I said, okay, all right. So you get out to, I keep thinking, where do you come up with this? Um, I mean, that was, I think it, it was like everything. Every part of that, like you never saw it coming. I think a couple of things is one, the fall guy is based on something that happened um, when I was 17. Um, I was in engineering school. One of the kids had his first car and he accidentally parked it, drove it into um, a car in the stall next to him. And he, he sort of like said, this didn't happen. And we drove off and he parked on the street. And within a couple of hours, the police came, and it was sort of, you know, it was all kind. It was kind of handled very well. Uh, The police officer said, you're going to pay this guy what it costs to get his car repaired. If he tells me it didn't, he goes, I'm coming back. And he goes, dog, and, you know. And it was was sort of like a nice sort of way. But then, like, a year later, um, his car got driven into in a parking parking lot. And uh, when he pulled the note off it said everybody thinks I'm leaving you my name and address I'm not and and it was just kind of that sort of thing of oh I kind of like the karma of that um, but there's also there's that kind of thing of there's two things there's that one thing in life where you think you can get away with it and you can't and two you don't know who the other person is that you impact and that could be anybody from the nicest, mildest person. It could be the Dalai Lama you parked into, or it's going to be, um, you know, it's going to be Genghis Khan you just drove into. 
And so the story that, that, that could play out from that can change dramatically. Um, but the other side of that, I think, is um, my background is engineering. I used to design uh, safety systems for oil rigs and things. And and you had to think around corners. You had to think about how people can screw up. Because it's that thing of like, what if someone doesn't pull this valve or turn this wheel or shut this off or they forget to fill this up or they don't check that that, that light's gone out. And you sort of like say, well, this will think for them. If they do this, then this is a backup. And for that backup, there's another backup. And so I'm just used to just looking at a situation and going, this can go wrong 10 ways from Sunday if you make a left turn now. <laughs> but if you make a right turn, this is what potentially will go wrong. And so most of it is just thinking, um, thinking recklessly about what the impacts of any given decision. So then I suffice it to say, it seems to me like um engineering work, because my husband's an engineer, it really does teach you to think of different uh it, it creates a pattern of uh I guess brain work or brain activity or skill the way you could think of as you said, things that could go wrong several different ways. And yeah, I mean, I think, you know, they sort of like talk about levels of safety and it's like how many times can someone do the, you know, override your safety systems before it really does go wrong. Um, but also, you know, I was a, <laughs> I was a, you know, I learned to fly and part of flying, you know, half the time you fly, to fly is relatively easy to navigate and deal with issues is the trickier part. I mean, most of your training is, what if it all goes wrong? But but even from the smallest airplane, it's, it's designed very cleverly that, you know, for every mechanical system, there's an electrical system. For every electrical system, there's something else. So it's like if one thing goes wrong, you've got something else that you can rely on to take up the job of that failed gauge. And so I have always... I kind of like that because that sort of, you know, tries to cover for all the eventualities because you can almost get to the point that all your gauges are, are out, but there's maybe like one or two things that are in a plane that would save your life and uh, and that would allow you still to get where you need to go. And, it's, and that's, that's really clever thinking on the part of aircraft uh, designers, I think, pretty much from World War II onwards. Well, and as someone who doesn't know how to fly, but as a passenger, that's really good to know. Uh, no idea. And by the way, if you're listening live tonight with us um, on May the 8th, you can call in and talk to Simon Wood. The number is 646-716-9922. That's 646-716-9922. Blog Talk Radio assures me it's a toll-free call in the U.S., uh, I just want to read a couple of uh, uh, quotes from people who is those excerpts from their review of your your newest and your newest book, Saving Grace. One of them is D.M. Pulley, author of The Unclaimed Victim. He says, Simon Wood, 
grabs you by the throat on page one and takes you on a wild thrill ride, a nail biter from start to finish. And uh, oh, oh yeah, Robert Dugoni, um he is the author of My Sister's Grave. He says nail biting suspense in a high stakes thriller. Simon Wood's gift is a dizzying pace packed with twists and turns to the very last enjoyable word. Those are nice. How does how's the how's it feel to when when other writers see you in such a um, way? I'm always I'm always slightly embarrassed and I try to ignore them. <laughs> All right. Um, <laughs> Sorry, I brought it up. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's always it's always weird. It's like you know someone's holding your homework up in in school and telling everybody what a great job you did. It's, it, it's nice, but it, it's, it's hard. I think it's an English thing. We don't, we don't know how to deal with compliments. I think there are a lot of um, places like that. Um, I know, I guess English or I know when I was in Japan, they, they would tell me, you know, we don't, we don't brag about our kids like people do in America when we went there. And uh, so maybe that's the more, the modesty, it's very modest. Um, I also know I listened to an interview where you said somebody was asking you about voices when you uh, about your audio books, and they said, "Well, when you think of your books and the and your main characters, what do their voices sound like to you?" And you said, "Well, they all sound like me." You know, being yeah with, with an accent of yours. But if you because you know the Fleetwood and Chills series, if you were casting this for a film, if you were um, and and maybe you are going to do a film. I don't know. But if you do, and you had some say on casting, who do you see as Fleetwood? Oh, for 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 Saving Grace. Yeah. Um, the two people I had in mind at the time, because we, we've we've got actually film interest on one of the other books, and and you know people were put in places as the playing parts in the film of sort of like changes monthly so but for me I think I would actually be interested in seeing sort of like Ryan Reynolds um, as Scott um, or um, I'm not sure who I'd want to be Tom Shields but I've always sort of seen um, Hugh Jackman or or, um, Ryan Reynolds as uh, Scott Fleetwood Those are yeah, good choices. Um, yeah, I like that. I, I, I just uh, think they're very. I think they'd both be very good at showing panic and fear of it when everything's going wrong. <laughs> okay, good. Yeah, that was what I was asking. What, what was it about their about their work that makes you think see them in that position or see them in those roles? And yeah, that's I, a very I, good answer. Yeah, I think it's just. I think they'd be able to give the right reaction. Hmm. Good. Yeah, I could see that. Um, so, uh, well, I don't want to say ask you too much about the film because I don't want to, you know, throw any kind of a uh, jinx or anything to it. But that sounds pretty good. You know, you can make it here in Atlanta because we've got a lot of films going on right now. Um, um, there's probably a good chance that that's where it would be made. Really? Yeah, because, I, the, uh, the film company does an awful lot of filming in, in Atlanta, so 
my feeling is that probably the majority of it will probably end if they if they follow through with it and it goes the full distance then i can see it being filmed in atlanta oh okay well that would be good um then you'd have to bring julie with you and then you know <laughs> and all your fan club could meet you here yeah we, last week i worked on haunting of hill house which is a net, netflix series uh where i played a funeral uh home director at a convention okay. And 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 the thing is, and I'm out in the suburbs. I was born and raised in Atlanta, but I'm out in the suburbs, Simon. And so I get this email from the from the casting people saying, "We need for you to have this, this, and this." They give me two days. We need for you to have this kind of outfit and this kind of colors and this so forth. So I'm trying to head to the store to get it, and there's all these shopping centers blocked off, strip malls with all these trailers and trucks. And I'm going, "What's happening here?" And then somebody goes, "Oh, Mark Wahlberg's over there." Um, you know, filming some scenes for a film. Well, well, tell them to hurry it up because I've got to go get something too. You know, but <laughs> yeah, you never in Atlanta. You never know who's around. You know, with uh, film. So yeah, this would be a great place to do it. Lots of tax breaks for film and television people. Uh, that would be fun. Is this is this the first book that you've you know come this close to uh, seeing in film? Uh, there's been, I think this is the one that's got the furthest to the point where there's been screenplays and stuff. Um, I've had maybe four or five other attempts, um, but they've never really gone the whole hog. I think there's, you know, there's more, the chance of, you know, there's like dozens, you know, thousands and thousands of books written every year, but there's only about 200 movies made a year. So, you know, you're... Mm -hmm percentages are quite low of getting the full conversion all the way through. Um, the most interesting one, I think, was a Korean film company wanted to do Pay in the Piper in Korea um, and change it to a Korean location and be a Korean language film. And um, I think that would have been really fun to see what they would have done with it. Um, but oh, the producer yeah. and the writer couldn't get their finances up for it. But... Um, but that would have been fun. I would have liked to have seen how that would have turned out. You know, I hear a lot of authors talk about um, making their own small or short films or independent films, um, whether they, you know, get, get to a an indie vest or a GoFundMe or something to make as a way because the distribution is on, a, on an indie film is it's easier than it was, you know, some ten years ago. Uh, just to get out in the market and show their work, have you ever thought about doing that, or has anyone ever suggested that to you? Um, there was they, they tried to do a web series of, based on one of my short stories. But that didn't that didn't quite work out. But I I haven't myself just because um gills all the resources to sort of do something like that at this stage. If I had someone to partner up with, then I think it would become a lot easier. But um, at this point, I honestly wouldn't know where to start. Mm -hmm. So a web series, yeah, those are quite popular too. Um, what about? Trying to think. Um, I'm trying, now, now you've got my mind picturing a, a web series for Paying the Piper, and that would be uh, pretty interesting too. Or um, what about a television series? Do you see? Um, I I have, you know, I've seen potentially for a couple of 
my books, I think there's potential of taking that character and, and making it episodic. I think um, no show would work in that context. And also the one that got away, I think there's potential for um, more for um, the one that got away. I could see that being more TV movie kind of deal. Um, mm-hmm. Whereas I could see no show being uh, the character from that could be more of an episodic, um, you know, 10 episode, 12 episode kind of TV show. Yeah, I like that. When, um, but that would be fun, don't you think? Like that? Yeah, I, I, I mean, think I... for me, it's it, it it opens it up to uh, a different audience. It's a chance to play with uh, a different kind of medium. Um, you know, part of my, if you like, bucket list for writing is that I I would still like to get something on Radio Four as a as a radio play, um, and I would like to do a comic. At the same time, I still would like to see. Um, you know, a TV show or a movie made because you've got, you know, the way you do it as a book is completely different. The way way of conveying the same thing in a in a visual medium. Well, that's interesting. You mentioned comic book because that's gotten so popular. And the last time I was at Book Expo America about two years ago, um, there seemed to be, you know, not exactly a preponderance, but you could tell it was starting to emerge more and. Also, Andrew Aiden and um, I forget his partner's name, but they worked with um, uh, Congressman John Lewis. You know who's um, yes, yes, I've seen those. I've seen those comic books. Yeah, because I think about four or five years ago, John Lewis was at Book Expo in New York and, and gave out you know like sample one chapter. And then when I went to see uh, John Lewis somewhere in Atlanta recently. Um, Last summer, yeah, Andrew Aiden said, you know, Lewis was trying to talk about how to reach young people, tell young people about the civil rights movement, about history and so forth. How can I reach them? And they're going, well, you could do the graph or not. You could do a comic book. And he's going, yeah. And they kept on. Every time they said, we got to reach people. Well, yeah, you could do this. And I think it took them a couple of years to convince him. And, uh, and then it's been, you know, extremely popular. Um, I've got two of the two in the series. And that I'm just very interested to hear you say that because yeah, that is so popular now. Yeah, and it's just trying to convey, you know, you're trying to convey um a story through images and you're having to pick the best images that you can to do that. So, you know, you know whereas I might write a hundred thousand words for um you know, a, a novel. You know, I'm going to be limited to maybe a couple of a hundred, couple of hundred panels to tell that story, mm-hmm. same story. And so, you know, yeah. you've got to convey multiple things at once, and be, you know, be clever about the way you're going to tell it. The least word, the the fewer words you have to use to tell a story, the harder it gets. Oh yeah, I see. Uh, yeah, good point. Um, on a different, just a little bit different subject, I noticed too that you also, and, and this is so people who are interested can contact you from your website about it. And by the way, I like how you call your website it's like your, um, like your web hangout or um, hideout, your web hideout. Yeah. But uh, and and if you're listening, you, know, it's simonwood.net. 
But you are available, as a lot of people know, but people listening who want to know may not be aware, that you are available as a keynote speaker or to hold workshops. I see that you've got one coming up in September at the uh, Southeast, um, uh, where is this one at? Southeast Washington Rogers. Southwest, yeah. Um, that's then, and you're going to be. If you, it says keynote speaker and plotting workshop. I can't think of anybody better than you <laughs> for a plotting workshop. So, what do you what do you teach people in there? What do you do without giving away everything? Um, basically, for the plotting one, um, I do a few different ones. Some I do online with people with videos that I've done. Um, and but if I'm doing in person, what I tend to do is I I wrote things for Writers Digest a few years ago, and that you know every one of those is a great basis for a workshop. Um, but I tend to break things down into very simple pieces, and um, again it's probably my little engineering background, but I'll take the subject whether you know in this case plotting and go, um, this is how I construct a story. This is how I literally like Lego blocks. This is how I put it together. And this is how it holds up. This is how it self-supports itself. Um, and I just sort of take through people through um, mainly a thought process of how you can, you know, there's something daunting about a book and you're like, say, I've got to write 300 pages and I've got to make it all fit and I've got to make it all work. And it seems such a huge task. And I just break it down into component pieces and say, you just take it one scene at a time, but just know where all your scenes are. And, and so I have a spreadsheet and color coding, and, and it's all on one page. And it just makes, it takes some of the fear and the, um, the sort of like unknown out of um, writing a book. Um, it still is not easy, but um, I take some of the pitfalls and perils of of starting without, you know, uh, without a clue and just trying to plow through. I, I like some of the titles of, of your workshops, Plot Thickeners and Killer Suspense. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's what that's what people want. Uh so you 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 probably enjoy doing that. I could imagine because I think that as an engineer, I know my husband he likes to explain things and he doesn't mansplain. You know, I've I've seen him explain things um, without talking down to people, and I could imagine you'd be the same way. You would um, explain things on where people understand it and make it fun. Yeah, I, I try to. Um, there's there's a little bit of um, public speaking is probably something that I I wouldn't have said I would do on a regular basis, but um, it's something I've. I think we. I didn't really have a choice. If I was going to write books, I had to, if you like, face the public, and I had to um, learn a way of engaging the audience and. And that sort of like helped me when it comes to doing the workshops. But there's there's always a little bit of fear in the back of my head that uh, that I'm in front of an audience, and I think that helps keep things animated. That I'm trying to just bottle the fear while I'm doing it. 
It gives you energy. That's what Ron Howard says. If you're a little nervous, it gives yeah, you yeah. energy. Yeah, because that's yeah, easy for him to say. I know. I know. Yeah, there's no kind of motivator like fear. So, um, one more thing, and I don't know if you keep this available for the public or not, but you have your own family brand of honey? Yes, yeah. Um, my wife is a, a scientist by training, and... Um, a few years ago, we used to have a huge bottle brush tree in our backyard at our old house that, that in the summer just hummed with bees. Um, and then one year we just didn't get any. And so my wife said, I want to, I just want to have a beehive so that the, the bottle brush tree and the trees around will have, uh, something to pollinate them and stuff. And so we just, that we kind of learned on the off the cuff how to be beekeepers and it worked uh, but the side effect was in the first year that we established a hive we had about 27 pounds of honey and we went there's no way we're we're going through this so we started just jarring it and selling it and then um, people kind of liked it and we expanded and we have three hives and they produce about 70 or 80 pounds of honey a year so we have our own honey brand our own honey label um we sell to some stores but most of it we sell direct because as soon as we get any kind of um harvest it's within about 24 hours it's sold out um from our customer base so um it doesn't stick around long Wildcat Canyon. Yeah. That's that's where we, we kind of butt up against where we live. I can see, you know, this is this would be a great thing to sell when you're having public appearances. You could have a gift basket that's got a couple of books, maybe an audio book, and some honey in there. Wrap it up, put a bow on it, jack up the price, and you've got, you know, <laughs> somebody forgets a gift to take home. Or uh, somebody needs something for you know Mother's Day or whatever, that'd be perfect. Yeah, I, I don't think some of our honey customers would like us um, diverting traffic away from them. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but yeah, it's an idea. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Maybe not my best, but you know I'm always. You know, I'm a publicist too, so I'm always thinking about what else could you do? Ready-made gifts, well, or actually, what it, what it is with our customers. Um, one thing we know, we didn't know we'd end up with is everybody with allergies, <gasps> and oh. so um, that's why we don't virtually sell to stores anymore because it's just people with allergies who are looking for local honey to help with their. Um, with their issues and you know so it does look a little bit shady when people come to our house with red eyes sniffing and twitching and then they come in and then they leave with something and they seem very happy um so yeah it's it i'm waiting for the the cops to be called on us you know <laughs> you know we talked a couple of years ago you and i talked about um you said if anything happened, you know, your browser history. Yeah. Um, 
Well, I think there's even a Patricia Highsmith story where a writer is trying to see how things would work. He rolls up some carpet, goes and buries it in the wood so he could be able to write it better. And then his wife takes off, disappears, and everybody knows they see him carry this, this thing out and burying it. And you were saying, you know, if anything happened, somebody got a hold of your browser history, if Julie decided just to go on a little girl's vacation and not tell you, you got all kind of stuff on there. <laughs> yeah, and it's that thing of that I, I tend to be one of those people who does try stuff out. Uh, you know, it's like I will, you know, walk my crime scenes. I will try and learn how to use uh, whatever tools are being used in the story. So, yeah, it does look a bit wor- worse that I've got my browser history and probably receipts for things um, that would all make a story to a police officer if they ever came by. Yeah, I laugh now, right? So, uh, anyway, (laughs) well, Simon, um, it's been so good having you here, and and I'm out of time, but I just want to thank you so much, and I do hope you'll come back, and I wish you much success and saving grace and everything you have coming up. So, if you're listening, folks, trust me. If you don't trust me, trust my husband. Once you start reading Simon Wood's books, you'll be hooked. You'll be scared, but you'll be hooked. And Simon, can you think of a better way to put it than that? No. <laughs> well, you probably can, but you'll be that size. Uh, so, Saving Grace, you can get it on Amazon. They can get um, and, and they can get autographed books from you. Or I saw that you would also autograph a book plate if people need it. They already have a book. Yeah, and I can autograph ebooks now as well. There's a little service that that allows me to sign an ebook and it comes back to your ebook. Nice. Okay. Well, I just want to say, folks, I'll have uh, Saving Grace. I'll have uh, uh, the website SimonWood.net, and uh, he's on all the social media. And I will be sharing uh, links to get Simon's books on all of my social media as well. So if you're looking around for it. I have it all out there for you. And Simon, it's great to have you. Please come back. Much success. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.